Hi, as Elliot said, my name's Scott, and I'll be reading the Bible today. We are reading chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 12, and you can find that on page 864 of the Church Bible, or follow along on the screen. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a, trig, a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. 
from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branch, branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Of, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. Well, good morning. My name is James Macbeth. I'm part of the team here that looks after this particular service. As a former English teacher, I feel it's my duty to bring to light certain crimes against literature. <laughs> now, if you're a librarian, you're already edgy. Just have to show that picture to know that that does immense damage to the spine of a book. Don't do it. <laughs> I am guilty of dog-earing pages, as my daughter Darcy will remind me, with horror but it's a crime. Speed reading is the next on the thing. There may be times when speed reading is necessary, it is helpful. But if you tell me that you read Great Expectations yesterday in full, you did not. No, you didn't. When we consider how good writers carefully craft a story, they build mystery and tension. They turn unexpected corners. They carefully carry the reader to the end. Perhaps the greatest crime against literature is to read the last page before you get there, well before you get there. Now, apart from my mother-in-law, Pam Crosley, who's here today, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> it's just not appropriate in church. It's not fair, is it? Lunch just got spicier. But that's just not on. A writer works hard to bring you to that last page, for it to be something of a wow moment, an exhalation. Unless, of course, you love the Lord Jesus and you are diving deep into his word, especially this word, the revelation, that picks up all that is in the Old Testament, all that's come in the New, and lands before us the last page. Those who've read ahead in Revelation know that the last page is given again and again and again in this letter. There's a stack of things, even in this chapter, as Scott read it, that give rise to questions, doesn't it? There are things to wrestle hard with here, but those who know this letter, know God's word, know that he does not want the end to be a mystery. He does not want the end of all things to be a matter of guesswork. He gives us the last page of history and time, the last page of your story and mine. He gives us the last page over and over and commands that we know it, we remember it, we allow it to dwell within us so that we'll walk into this day and all that's to come with a very clear-cut hope. We'll head into this week with a vision of Christ that will not waver whatever comes. 
that we will be men and women, youth and kids, who bear a light even into very, very dark places. To that end, we're going to come back through chapter 6 and then land in chapter 7 this morning. So this morning we're going to look at, first of all, those six seals. Secondly, what does it mean to be sealed and safe? And then we're going to close on that last page, the multitude before the throne. Let me pray briefly. Father, this is a mighty word. Before this, we are very small, but you love it when we look up when we take your hand there in the word and walk with you by faith. Father, please make this clear to us in our heads, in our hearts, in our lives that we might be convinced this day that Christ is Lord, that your spirit is in action right now and that you are our Father and you wait for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the six seals. Last week we opened chapters 5 and 6 and we encountered a moment of great tension, perhaps even panic, if you remember. God the Father has a scroll with seven seals. The scroll is all of history. It's every day. It's this day. And he, the question is asked, who's worthy to open that scroll? And John weeps because no one seems to be worthy. No one seems to be absolutely in control of it all able to understand the complexity of events and time, able to lay it before us, until he is directed to go looking for the Lion of Judah. He is worthy. And behold, he sees a lamb who was slain. He is worthy. And of course it's Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended and enthroned. He is the Lion, he is the Lamb, he is the one we encountered from chapter 1, ruling and worthy, to open that scroll. And as we see him do so in chapter 6, we come to understand why that last page is so precious. Why God wants us to know it by heart. Because the pages in between can be heart-breaking. The experiences of people back then and the ages up to now, they are complex at best, confronting and deadly at worst. They are marked by hardship and conflict and, yes, death. And all of it is headed towards a stark day of judgment, the sixth seal. Now, we're not going to unpack all of this because we were in these passages last week, but I think it's really important to note this. Even though we have the seals opened one after the other, what is being described here are not successive ages of history, but rather events and situations happening around the world at the same time, both then and now. So Paul Barnett, one of my teachers, said it's like those old-fashioned overhead transparencies placed one on top of the other. That's the image that we've got here. The horses who rode then are riding today, aren't they? The first seal sees a soldier king on a white horse pointing to the reality of conquering empires. Back then, of course, it was Rome, but how many have going judgment of God? Or that God is small and powerless here. Or worse, he is actually wicked and cruel. Now, none of those things are true. 
But we know, don't we, when we are in the thick of pain, when things are very hard, simply as a human being or particularly as a follower of Jesus, it's hard to believe that when it hurts. When we are in the midst of fearful things that are way beyond our control. Now you may have seen the signs coming in. Uh, On Saturday the 4th of March, we're getting all our men from morning and evening up to Bill Miller's place, up where we had our Christmas party. It's there on Saturday night, 4th of March. And a a number of things we're going to do on the night, but I'm going to interview one of our own, James Francis, one of our dads here, who's a sailor. And I want to ask James, what's it like being on a small boat out to sea at night and a storm kicks up? on an element way, way beyond your, your expertise and control. To hear what he says to that, come along. Everything that's described here is outside an individual's control. They dwarf the individual. They easily swallow a household, don't they? Be it conquering violence, running out of money, grave illness... And we know, don't we, when, this, when we're in this position or we're watching it in others, be it Turkey or Ukraine or other things like that, we wonder, is anyone really in charge here? Revelation says Jesus is in charge. Is God weak or is he powerless in this? No. He is powerful and he gives these things with limitations. Is he wicked? Is he cruel? No. Again, Revelation, echoing all of Scripture, affirms again and again that he is good through and through. God is totally just, he is holy, and he is full of wisdom. How does that work? How can that be? Here is the problem of evil when we know we have an all-powerful, good God I think this is part of what drives that cry when the fifth seal is open and there you have those at that time and since who have lost their lives for following Jesus. And they cry out, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge? Why are you waiting? What's with that? Why are you allowing such injustice to roll, such cruelty to play out? And at this point, we need to stop wrestling with the problem of evil and go hard at the problem of good. Our notion of God's goodness is so often two-dimensional and very, very thin. Why is he waiting? Why all this? The answer lies in an ever-deepening grasp of God's goodness and his holiness and his justice. It all works to his timetable and a method that we would never choose, would never invent, but is a marvel to behold. Revelation's constant reference, he constantly names, doesn't he, the lamb that was slain, reminds us that God's goodness has at its heart the most wicked, violent, wrong thing ever done by human beings made in the image of God. And that is to put to death his sinless son, Jesus, on the cross. That's wrong, isn't it? As Peter says to those who pierced him in Acts 3, 
you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. You see, by that death, all who trust in Jesus have life. Because of that condemnation, we gather today as the forgiven. All that lostness, all that brokenness of a sinful, rebellious world, he is not overcome and his character has not changed. Jesus is willing to dive deep into the darkness. He allows us to do our very worst so that he can do his best. He punches through death out to the other side and as that risen king, Alpha and Omega, the lamb who was slain, he has won the greatest victory, the biggest battle over sin and death itself. That's why he's in charge. That's why he is worthy to open the scroll. Able to tell his people, impatient for justice, wait. Wait until the number and the time. Wait until the day of the sixth seal. And what comes next is so much more confronting than anything that comes with those four riders, isn't it? This is Judgment Day, where all of creation is in upheaval. The heavens recede and rebellious humanity from the greatest to the smallest, king to slave, prime minister to cleaner, all try to hide in vain. Hide from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the just wrath of the Lamb. Friends, we may never experience in our lifetime the sort of violence that's depicted here in chapter 6. We may never know what it's like to be invaded. We might not be witness to a killing or a victim of it. We might not suffer hunger or long-term illness. But I tell you, we will be there. You will be there, as will I. The day when God comes to deal with everything that is wrong, all that sin is and does, not just out there, not just in others, but in you and in me. And the question asked at the end of chapter 6, that's got to burn today and on every day. Who then can stand? If everyone else is trying to hide, trying to run, trying to get away from those eyes, the gaze, the all-seeing eyes, who then can stand and not try to hide? How do you answer that question? You'll never hear a more important one, or will I? And the answer given here is that those who will stand are those who know Jesus as saviour before he comes as judge. Those in the terms of Revelation 7, those who are sealed and safe. Is that you? As it is me? Part two, sealed and safe. As John's burning question hangs in the air, there is a shift in scene that answers it. Angels are commanded to hold back the four winds. They're symbolic of the, the wholesale judgment described in the sixth seal. 
until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, as Nigel uh, explained last week, a seal, it's just a stamp or it's a mark of ownership. It sets the object, or in this case, the person aside. Unfortunately, <laughs> this is one of those points where uh, everyone seems to panic, the seal on foreheads, people go all over the place, um, fear of sort of barcodes and all the rest of it. Calm down. Keep remembering that Revelation is a great collector. If all the, all the books in the Bible, Revelation is the great collector. It collects the old and the new. And most, if not all, of its apocalyptic imagery has its roots in earlier books or letters. This is why we as a church do the whole of Scripture, why we do old and new constantly. We're always moving through it. Revelation is the great collector. So back in Ezekiel 9, in the Old Testament, an apocalyptic vision, God's about to judge Jerusalem for its wickedness, but he commands a man with an inkwell and a stylus to symbolically mark the forehead of everyone who has a godly grief at what's going on in that city, thereby preserving them. That itself, isn't it? It's an echo of the Passover blood on the door way back in Exodus when God's judgment fell on Egypt. Now that Jesus has come as saviour, he's shed his blood. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.13, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. There it is. There he is. We don't get a literal mark, but far better, we get the Lord in residence by his spirit. He is here right now, this hour, this time, this place. And Revelation 14.1 states that because of this, we have the name of the Lamb and his Father written on us. In script, the Lord himself, the one who matters most, can read. We belong to him. That's what this means. Now, it's really important to note here that God's promise in Revelation 7 is not protection from war, not protection from poverty, he doesn't promise anywhere that he's going to protect us from sickness or persecution. That's not the promise here. This is a promise of protection from final judgment. This is really important, isn't it? Because we can be suffering terribly in fear that we are suddenly out of favour with God. And yet we are not if we have trusted him as Saviour and Lord and we know his promises those who are sealed and what follows is a highly symbolic listing of Israel's tribes and saved members 12,000 each all adding up to 144,000 I think Scott Hudson should be the first to get coffee for the rest of the term for reading that for us on a Sunday morning thank you brother again this has given rise hasn't it to all sorts of interpretations including uh, this is this is all of the, the you know the only Old Testament believers who are saved uh, or it's the ultimate number of Jews who will be saved. Uh, perhaps it's an elite set of Christians. But I'm not convinced with any of that. 
The fact that the protective seal is given before the final day of wrath when every single human being who's ever lived will be on show means that it must refer to all of God's servants, including Old Testament and New, up to this day and beyond, until that day comes. This is referring to us. In the New Testament, Galatians 6.16 refers to us, the church, as the Israel of God. In 1 Peter 2.9, we are described as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. And this time last year, do you remember the letter that we opened up? The letter of James to the churches. And there it is, right there in the first two verses, it's addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. All the churches. We who are sealed servants are included here. And even though it's deeply against my, the grain as a former English teacher, I've got to commend my mathematics brethren. I've got to say against the grain, we are so needy of our math teachers and everyone here who loves numbers. All those here who live inside the numbers. Because they can tell us 144,000 is a stunning number. It's a perfect number. It's almost endlessly divisible. It all works out. It's a symmetrical, symbolic list of the sealed and saved. It's intended to convey the perfect saving work of God. In the mess and the violence, the upheavals and the loss, the grief and the longing, and the, just the sheer cruelty that Christians face at times. This number of 144,000, it's God's locked-in promise that everything he is doing will add up. There'll be nothing and no one left out of his saving work and purposes. You see, we're too small to see the full symmetry of his ways, but don't doubt them. Are you in the thick of stuff at the moment? You just cannot understand how can this be? Perhaps all of us in some sense are. But this number says God will, it will all add up. It will make sense. It will be perfect and full at the end. So if you look at, it, at snowflakes under a microscope, every single one is a marvel of symmetry. I'm not sure, I don't know whether they're all completely unique, it's possible, but each one is a stunning thing of symmetry. God's creation. But that's hard to see, isn't it, and appreciate if you are in the middle of a blizzard, when you are hunched over and you're just getting through the next day. We're too small, we're too vulnerable. But don't forget what is stated here. There is order and a Lord determinedly in his time fulfilling his purposes. A purpose and end just just bursts out in verse 9, our last part this morning, the last page, the multitude before the Lamb. So even as we marvel at the symmetry of God's ways, all our numbers, men and women, are going, yeah, this adds up. He kind of just blows that up in a glorious look at that perfect number of sealed servants. John was given a number, a figure, 
And now he gets to see them in this vision from every nation, tribe, people and language. And sure enough, it was a great multitude that no one could count. No one. See, here is that fleshy, realised fact promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 when God took him, an old, childless man, outside at night and he said, look up, count the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. And this is what John sees. Stars now gathered as servants. All the men and women of faith, like Abraham, together in fulfilment of God's word. And don't doubt it, we are there in this scene. Through John's eyes, we are seeing our last page, yours and mine, if we follow Jesus. In classic contrast, verse 14 tells us the white robes represent the purity and righteousness given when you wash them yourself in the blood of the Lamb. You accept his sacrifice for us, his blood in our place. The palm branches associated with festivals, that huge party that gathered around Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem was just full of palm branches. It speaks of a party. And together, indeed, we sing the words that are going to state together at the end this morning. Salvation belongs to our God. A God who promises in verse 15 that we'll be serving. We won't be dormant when that last page opens up. We'll be active. We'll be joyfully engaged with him, sheltered by his presence. We'll be there physically in the room with him. Fully feasted, there'll be no hunger or thirst. Safe, sheltered and shepherded with no grounds for grief and tears. That's heaven. That's home. Now, for those in John's day who were losing their homes and their lives as Christians, for every age of the church where persecution has been most sustained and cruel, this vision of the end, this brilliant last page, given, made clear, is so precious, isn't it? As one writer observed, John, writing from prison himself, is writing to Christians on the verge of a nightmare season. A season that went for centuries. Named here as the Great Tribulation. The Great Testing. And this was a sustained promise of light and a triumphant church, even as they entered the darkness of their day. It's precious. Now our context, it's less violent, isn't it? It's not quite as confrontational, but the times are changing and the cost of publicly standing for Jesus, we know it, don't we? Be it at home, online, at work, in politics, at uni or at school, the cost is rising. And as our day darkens, our only hope is the one who in goodness and love dive deep into this darkness allowed us to do our worst, he stepped willingly to the cross and as the lamb who was slain, he did his best. He took the punishment that we deserved and then he rose again, the living one. 
We have no promise here that we won't suffer any of those things revealed in the five seals. But we've got a vital promise regarding the sixth, and that is Judgment Day. Who can stand when everyone else is hiding? Who can stand when Jesus and the Father come to judge? We can. When we trust in him as Saviour, sealed with his Spirit, bearing his name. Serving a Lord whose salvation symmetry finds its fulfilment in numberless voices, our voices singing, salvation belongs to our God.